If you get a seat at the table, what are you going to do with it? T.S. Balaji, VP of Product Design and User Experience at LogMeIn, poses this exact question in our interview with him. And it's something a lot of design leaders are curious about. For years, designers have struggled to get a seat at the table, to have a say in not only how products are designed, but what products are designed and why. Questions previously in the hands of business, engineering, and marketing leadership. With a background in industrial engineering and an MBA, TS is more prepared than many designers to answer this question. In this episode, we chat with TS about change management for design, spreading design beyond the design team, and advice for listeners who are at larger enterprises and are struggling to make design a priority. So get ready for a mini MBA with our guest, and thanks for listening. T.S. Balaji is a pretty unique guy with degrees in industrial engineering and an MBA in global strategy and marketing. He has a multi-dimensional understanding of how businesses work. But his passion for design and user experience gives him a rare holistic view of how to fit all this stuff together. At Sprint and Cox, and now he's at LogMeIn, T.S. has found himself in what he calls a change management gig. He's doing the impossible helping big corporations value and invest in design to find new ways to be competitive. And he's doing it with a good measure of positive energy. T.S. Balaji, welcome to the Design Better podcast. Thank you, Aaron and Eli. Happy to be here. So we had an interesting conversation recently uh, just about the, the, the things that you're doing at uh, LogMeIn. And there, there's a lot of interesting things that we want to dig into there because uh, I think that a lot of people uh, find themselves in challenging roles in the enterprise where uh, they're, they're trying to make design a priority. But before we get to that, um, let's let's talk about your background. Um, you know, as as we said in the intro, you're an interesting guy doing very difficult things at at really big enterprises. Tell us about your background and and how you found your way into design. Sure. So. Um I started my undergrad in engineering and then uh, ended up at uh, Louisiana Tech for industrial engineering. And that led me into human factors. And uh, this was uh, late 90s. Uh, It was a time when uh, human-computer interaction was still in its infancy. Uh, The design discipline uh, in and of itself uh, was still in its infancy in the world. Uh, internet companies were starting to get formed and uh, were booming. Um, and I found myself in a school where um, we were trying to understand this space uh, with a multidisciplinary approach. So uh, background in psychology, uh, computer science, industrial engineering, um, and different groups we're working at this problem in different ways. And I found that interesting. And that's how it started me on this journey. Um, I had originally thought about doing something slightly different with industrial engineering. And this opened my eyes. And my advisor at that time um, opened my eyes to this new discipline. And this got me interested. And I wanted to stay and work in this discipline. And uh, eventually, I ended up... uh, starting my PhD program, and I did that until uh, I reached the age of uh, reason. And uh, 
after that, I ended up in a place where um, uh, most people get their careers in the Bay Area. It was a couple of startup companies in the voice uh, interaction space. So we were creating voice browsers instead of internet browsers, and uh, uh, we were trying to put applications on top of it um, and educate people on writing uh, and creating voice applications that were very interactive. And at that time, we were thinking about it purely from a, how do we recreate what's available on uh, the web to something in voice? Uh, and that was fundamentally the model that we were working in. And that eventually led me to Sprint and uh, Sprint PCS, which uh, hired me, they hired me to do essentially the same thing in this space. And then that got me started into designing for mobile, mobile devices, and then eventually designing for uh, in-vehicle uh, cars. And then that led me to eventually Cox and then now lock me in. Yes, how does your, your background in engineering and business influence the way you think about running design at scale? Uh, great question. So uh, there are a couple of things that engineering gives me. It's, it's a language to talk to other engineers with. And it, uh, business gives me the language to talk to other business people with. And fundamentally, if we think about design from purely understanding customer problems and uh, solving customer problems, translating that into something that the C-suite understands is a key component of how we start to elevate design within an organization. And that is... Something that I learned early on in my career, I had a great mentor in uh, Jeff Lynch who came from that background and uh, he had a lot of experience sitting in the C-suite at that time uh, and gave me a lot of valuable insights that I still carry on today um, in terms of how to think about it, how to talk about it, and what is going to be valuable to that group of people at the end of the day. So this is a, an interesting trend that we've seen. People that uh, tend to have successful careers and figure out how to create great products at scale, they tend to be very cross-disciplinary in uh, their focus. For instance, Alex Schleifer, uh, we talked to him last season on the podcast uh, at Airbnb. He leads design there. He's got a background in engineering. And mm -hmm. uh, because his brother was a better engineer than him, he decided, oh, I better focus on design. But today, you know, when he has meetings with his colleagues in engineering and product, he gets them, you know, like they can, they can speak a common language and, uh, you know, align their teams, think about the product, think about the customer experience. Let's, so let's talk about language, because I think that's what's most fascinating to me about you. Engineering guy, uh, but you talk about human factors and, you know, I've heard you talk about design and really, you know, your, your passion around design. And then when I see how you break down how design works at LogMeIn, uh, it's it's like a system, you know? It's like this sophisticated system that the C-suite can, they can grok that. They can understand that very, very uh, clearly. So talk about language. How, how, does, how has language uh, influenced your career? Uh, great. Great point. Uh, and one of the things that I learned uh, going through grad school was uh, one of the faculty members used to say this. Um, he used to say, 
the fundamentals of physics and how we operate are essentially the same. We use different language to describe it in different engineering forms that suits our needs. And as a result, uh, and he was saying, uh, and he had a long story career, uh, what he was saying to us was, um, all you're doing in every new discipline is learning the language and applying principles that are probably fundamental to almost things that are common across the board with that framework in mind and a new language to utilize it with. Um, and uh, once again, something uh, that I've carried with me for a long time. And it, going back to the point that you were making about uh, the different disciplines, um, as I was going through my PhD program, I did a lot of computer science classes and statistics classes. And I had, those were essentially things that were part of the curriculum that I needed to do, but I didn't think about this job when I was doing that. Uh, so in a lot of ways, uh, I would say I have been lucky in my life more than I've been good. And that has served me really well. And I've been able to utilize things that I have learned over a long period of time in interesting ways. Um, and what that ultimately means for different groups, um, uh, so your C-suite or uh, your engineering groups or your marketing groups, they all talk a different language. And if you're able to talk that language with them in translating design principles, in translating your designs, now you're at a place where you're talking their language, but in a way that they can start to understand what is it that you're bringing from a design point of view, right? Um, and uh, one of the things that I've talked to my designers about over the period of time um, since I've been managing uh, or leading people, uh, design, you can start to think about it as a tool or a decision-making tool for these individuals, just like, data and analytics is another decision-making tool, right? Um, if, for instance, a particular company is interested in increasing usage of a particular product, then you can create designs that where you can start to talk about how one design gives a certain kind of advantage over another in terms of increasing that adoption, in terms of increasing that usage. So when you think about design in that way, um, it's it's an art form in the way it manifests itself, but it's a science in terms of how it enables people to make decisions that either relates back to um, whether it's a for-profit company or uh, a behavior that you want to enable uh, other customers to do or users to do, uh, whether it's in a social context or a nonprofit context, all of these things apply regardless of that context in which you're doing this. Um, and I think uh, the nudge unit, if you're familiar with it, uh, in, uh, in the UK, and there was a nudge unit, I, I don't know if it's still there, within the US government, um, they had done a lot of work in terms of understanding behaviors that could create social good within the context of enabling um, folks within the military to sign up for 401k plans uh, 
or uh, other federal programs that are going to be beneficial for um, the citizens of whether it was UK or the US. Actually, I, just on the subject of language, uh, still had a question for you. Um, so we, we interviewed Laura Martini for last season's podcast, and she had this really great trick. So she also has an engineering background. And so when she's talking to engineers, instead of saying, talking about research, she talks about root cause analysis. And I've mentioned this in a few workshops, people have really kind of latched onto it. Are there any things like that, that you, any kind of terms that you flip when you're speaking to either engineering or, or business leaders? Uh, when I talk to business leaders, typically I'm using financial terms. Uh, I'm talking about it in terms of either investments, I'm talking about it in terms of returns. Um, and uh, depending on the business that you're in, uh, you're going to be having um, terms like churn, retention, lifetime value, um, right? But fundamentally, it's all about how you're enabling certain behaviors that end up getting that return on that investment, right? Um, if you start to think about uh, uh, your own products in terms of Sketch and other Envision apps, um, you can do a behavior modeling on what do designers use and what adds the most value. And value might be here uh, something that you can look at as a tenure of an individual uh, if you are able to track an individual or tenure of a company if you're able to track a company, so on and so forth. So all that data exists in the world today, right? And you can look at that information and start to think about how certain behaviors starts to manifest themselves for better retention rates of individuals, of companies, and so on and so forth, right? Uh, and those are ways in which you can start to then model how you design your applications that can then directly drive your long-term goals in terms of revenue for Envision, retention, so on and so forth. So this is what's very interesting is, you know, to, to hear you talk about the business side of this and unpack that, uh, you know, that mm -hmm. language. Um, language is sort of like the IO of the design team. And it seems like when teams are struggling the most and they're des they desperately want a seat at the table, give me a seat at the table. They just don't know how to, there's no input output layer. They, sure. they don't know how to talk to uh, executives and engineers. So... Uh, you know, you talk about your your background and, and it being a lot of luck that you arrive here, but it's really about exposure to diverse perspectives, which isn't that a design? Like that's a that's a fundamental principle of design. We want to build empathy and you right. kind of built that into your educational background. Right. And um, but it wasn't by design that I did that, though. That's why I meant it was luck, right? <laughs> I, I didn't have the intention of doing this job that I have today, right? Uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago and doing all my education. Um, and uh, some of it I begrudgingly went through. Uh, and I still remember those days, right? And uh, that's, why, that's what I mean by luck. Um, and little did I know it would prepare me for the jobs that I will have. In, in the past few years. Absolutely. And, and that's something I can identify with. My background is in painting. So 
you know, how did I, how did I find myself here? But I find that people who think laterally that can connect the disconnected, they're the ones that, that tend to find new and interesting places, uh, for their career. No, absolutely. And, um, uh, I think about it in terms of the analytics groups that uh, I have led in my past and uh, how my background in statistics actually helped me through that. You know, I don't have a degree in statistics, but, uh, you know, to go through any PhD program in the U.S., uh, you will go through a certain amount of statistics, right? That's right. And whether you like it or not, you're going to go through it. And or not. If you're... <laughs> 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 if you're able to retain some of that information, you, you start to see the applications of it. But when I was going through that, it was hard. It wasn't easy. And I was I was going like, how is this actually going to help me? Right. Um, but now I look back to those days and I go, I'm glad I did that. I'm glad um, I'm able to do what I'm able to do today. And the explosion of big data and the intersection of statistics and design into that, like I couldn't have forecasted that when I was going through school by any stretch of the imagination, right? So those are all the things that I'm pointing to in terms of luck, right? Absolutely. So, so let's talk about that luck. Yeah. As, and I'll, you know, I'll call that luck in air quotes because sure. I do think that there is a fair bit of design into that pathway, even mm -hmm. if you don't see the, the destination. But... Um, you, you call yourself the, uh, reluctant change management guy that you, you've kind of found yourself in this role. So let's talk about how, how did you find yourself in this spot where you are coming into a large company, um, and introducing design and creating a groundswell of, of appreciation for it? Sure. And, uh, I wouldn't call myself the reluctant change management guy. I think I was the, uh, uh, when I did it the first time, I was the ignorant change management guy, thinking that I was getting a director position in user experience, and little did I know it was more of a change management gig, right? And it was not a user experience gig, um, or less of a user experience gig, if you may. Um, and that, uh, you talked about people wanting seat at the table, right? Um, uh, the question becomes, okay, if you get the seat at the table, what are the things that you're going to be able to do? And what are the things that enable you from the seat that you have and the uh, perspective that you bring to the table because of the role that you have on the team? What can that enable to the larger organization? I think these are clear viewpoints I would love for our uh, designers and design leaders to have as they yearn for the seat at the table, right? Um, and the second part of that is how do we arrive at that? And uh, I used yearn, I, I would use earn again. So in this term, uh, E-A-R-N, um, how do you earn that seat at the table, right? So how do you go about engaging with your stakeholders so that they see value in bringing design to the table, right? And it, it always takes someone to bring you at the seat of the table and uh, give you that opportunity to talk and give you that opportunity to help with decision-making, 
help with the strategy, help with where you take this particular product, where you take the design of this particular experience. And that's where partially it has to be something that we are doing as a community to earn that seat. And partially you need leaders who can recognize that in design and saying it would be good for them to be here. So one of the things um, when I talk to my previous boss, uh, I tell him um, sales is a two-way street. I was selling something, but you're also willing to buy what I was selling. You were in that mindset of buying. Uh, it doesn't work one way, right? Um, and same way here, earning a seat at the table is a two-way street as well. We have to want to earn that and we have to showcase what we can do if we earn. And on the other side, someone needs to be willing to take that chance in you, in your group, in what you can provide. Actually, I have a, sort of a follow-up to that. And um, so obviously at, at LogMeIn and um, probably some of the other places you work, you've, you've earned that seat at the table and you've been able to spread design beyond the borders of your team. And why is that important for the work that you and your team are doing? Great question. Um, so one clarification, I think uh, I'm still earning a seat at the table within LogMeIn, right? Um, and uh, it'll be a process, it'll be an ongoing process that uh, we'll go through that and we'll be, uh, it's going to be a journey that we'll get to in the upcoming years where it is known, it is solidified, uh, everyone in the organization recognizes it. Design is institutionalized, and it's not something that you're evangelizing, right? Um, so going back to your question about um, why is it important to have a seat at the table, it goes back to one of the things that Aaron was saying early on, which is uh, empathy, right? Um, if we are able to institutionalize empathy, we would be at a better place as a organization and as a society. And if you're able to influence that within the confines of the 150 people, 200 people that you're working on a day in and day out with, the impact that it can have in the larger society is um, how I think about this and what it can do to corporations, uh, what it can do for nonprofit, what it can do for uh, general good of uh, the places that we live in, uh, wherever it might be today, right? And uh, one of the things that I say when I typically end my uh, meetings is let's go do some good in the world. And doing good, not just purely from your customer standpoint, your user standpoint, but also from a company, a shareholder, and a larger society in general. And the impact that you can have with the tools of the trade that we have and how it can start to manifest itself in ways that sometimes are very evident in uh, some of the work that these different units like an Nudge Unit are doing. And some of these things are evident in some of the nonprofits. Um, some of the things are evident in uh, some of the principles that corporations take on um, in terms of how they operate, what they do, and how they go about doing it on a daily basis. So you've you've been at LogMeIn for a little over a year, is that right? Le less than a year. So I've been there. Less than a yeah, year. So I've been there for about nine months at this point. 
So there for nine months and design wasn't a significant um, uh, pillar of the business at that point. Was that, is that, is that fair or was there a, already a, a team that was doing some good work? There is a team and there was a team there before I joined um, that was doing a lot of good work, right? So um, Log Me In as it exists today um, is a merger between uh, or was a merger between former LogMeIn and former GetGo of Citrix. And when I joined, they had just completed uh, their merger. And then um, uh, since then, uh, LogMeIn has um, acquired a couple of other companies and all of this is in the public domain, right? Um, so uh, so you, you stepped into a lot of complexity. It's, it's uh, Yes, that's There's fair. a lot going on. Yeah, there's a lot going on and that's fair to say. And... Um, one of the recognitions that I had was um, the reason that I was there was a recognition on part of the uh, management team, as well as a recognition of the work that the team that was already there had done. And if that didn't exist, then I wouldn't be there. Got it. Got it. So uh, at design is starting to become an important thing at LogMeIn. It's starting to be invested in. So to, to your analogy earlier that sales is a two-way street, that the question was in their head. They're they're ready to receive that and and uh, grow that. So you stepped into uh, you know it's a complex big organization, uh, lots of different locations, lots of teams. There's just a lot to coordinate there. And you know what what we've seen a lot of design leaders do in that situation is they create a fancy studio, they standardize process and tooling, uh, they start to dial in design quality things like that. Uh, and th those are some things that you have worked on yourself or thought about, uh, but you're doing something else that's very interesting and unique, which is that you've created a maturity model that is essentially framing, you know, here's where we are today and here's where we could be. Um, and, and, and here's a plan to move forward. Can you talk about that maturity model, where that comes from and, and how that's changing the way design works today at LogMeIn? Sure. So uh, I'll talk a little bit about the maturity model. And it's a maturity model that I've uh, uh, used in uh, previous positions that I've had. So uh, it goes something like this. Uh, I, it's Mars, so uh, missing, ad hoc, repeatable, and sustainable. And um, within that, we have six pillars of experience. So we have customer consciousness, culture, design, research, measurement, um, and strategy and prioritization. So essentially, those six pillars uh, are core to how design matures over a period of time. And if you're in, uh, let's say, missing, it typically takes a few years before you're in ad hoc, a few years in ad hoc to then get to repeatable and then to eventually get to sustainable. Uh, the one unique thing about, so that's the maturity model uh, that we had talked about previously as well, Aaron. Um, the unique thing about LogMeIn is LogMeIn has multiples of product. It's not a single product company, right? As a result, we have a BU structure, which is a business unit structure. Uh, one of them focuses on communication and collaboration, which uh, runs uh, products like GoToMeeting, JoinMe, Grasshopper. And then uh, we have customer engagement and support, uh, where we have products like Bold, Bold360, 
uh, Bull360 AI, um, and the last one is IAM, or Identity Access Management, which has products like LastPass, which Aaron, you're very familiar with, right? So when you think about design and design culture, what I found myself in was each one of those product set or each one of those BUs had a differing level of maturity and operated at a different level of maturity, right? Um, so for a designer who is at LogMeIn, uh, they would have an experience that's very much focused on one of those products and the maturity and and the way that particular product operated was the experience that that particular designer ended up getting, right? And as a result, like in any other situation, you'll have a variance across all of these different products and experiences. And the maturity model that I was able to bring is a tool to bridge those variances across those differing BUs and product lines within those BUs. You also had a or are working on a playbook for your team, so processes can be easily understood and repeated. Can you tell us a little bit about what's in that playbook and, and how you use it? Uh, sure. So uh, within the playbook, there are um, processes and tools and techniques, and uh, sometimes it's our it's oriented towards uh, the design team themselves. Sometimes it's oriented towards the businesses. Sometimes it's oriented towards specific products. And with uh, the products that I described, you can start to see uh, uh, something like a go-to-meeting, which is more consumer-facing, versus a bold, which is more uh, enterprise-facing. Um, uh, there are different techniques that you're going to need to bring to bear, right? Um, and in terms of organization, the way I think about organizational change, I think about it in terms of how you're going to be able to introduce processes in such a way that it doesn't completely disrupt the core activity that the organization is involved in. But by utilizing the process, they're getting to a better situation and as a result, better results, and they start buying into it at the end of it, right? So it's about changing something without bringing in uh, a huge budget or a large group of people that essentially are focused on transformation. It's transformation from within. And in this particular case, um, since we have so many different products, we had to focus on so many different changes within those products that are pertaining to the culture and the business models and um, the technologies and the kinds of uh, processes that were being enabled within each one of those products, right? So as a result, you can start to think of these as a, a lot of these smaller companies that are running within a business unit, right? So how do we start to create change um, that is going to be meaningful and material to a lot of these products that are running um, with very specific goals? And how do we start to make that change in terms of um, materially impacting the results of the particular product, as well as the way in which design is engaged in that process, right? And if it was a different kind of company, um, the playbook would be slightly different, right? And so the idea here is 
there's no one solution that is going to fit in all of these companies that are available in the marketplace, right? So you have to go in, understand what is going on within any given company. And that is in terms of product, target segments, in terms of processes, in terms of uh, design maturities, um, in terms of how design is talked about within the execution teams, as well as, as the executive teams. So your playbook will change based on all of these different factors, right? And that's the tool set to bring to bear when you get into any new situation, whether you're um, uh, transforming or changing anything, or if you're just there to lead an already mature um, design unit. So the, the notion of a playbook, that's, that's a pattern that uh, seems to, to be pretty common for big enterprises, lots of business units, because you've essentially got to evangelize yeah. and, and spread the practices throughout. We heard that from Google, um, who have in the past, they've uh, trained engineers to, to do uh, usability testing. I know that you did something similar. You trained engineers how to do... Customer interviews. Uh, customer interviews, and then you know Cisco. They've they've created their own design thinking handbook that they can spread uh, between units, business units. IBM famously, they also have a, a small playbook on design thinking too. So uh, this is this is fascinating of just like spreading the gospel of design outside of the borders of the design team. So talk to us about. Um, what that's like. So you create the playbook that that guides multiple design teams in lots of design locations. But then the next step is transcend the design team, teach the engineers how to do customer interviews. Why is that important? How do you do that? Sure. Um, and going back to the comment that you made about Cisco creating a design thinking toolkit, that is one of the plays in the playbook. Right, uh, if you want to think about it that way, uh, so meta. <laughs> um, so, what we tried to do at Log Me In was we tried to educate our uh, engineers and um, product managers um, how to do customer interviews, how to ask the right questions, how to not lead, not bias, as well as how to analyze once you have that data, right. Um, and fundamentally, if you start to think about a B2B environment where uh, you have a, think about it from a learn, buy, get, pay, use, serve, uh, a particular customer is going to look at a particular product and they're going to need to learn about what it is for, how it can be useful within the context of how I run my business, so on and so forth. Um, in that process, there's a lot of interactions that happens Right. So during a learn process of that um, customer lifecycle, a customer ends up understanding about a particular product. At the same time, the sales team, if it's a touch sales, right, they start to learn about the customer's problem as well. And the same thing holds true when you get deeper into each one of those stages in the lifecycle. So as a result, there's a lot of resident knowledge that is within the organization. The question then becomes, how do you unpack and garnish that knowledge and put that to use in creating better products, right? 
And creating a technique and training program such as what we had done allows us to unpack that resident knowledge that's within the company, right? And it's not like, so here's an example. So uh, if you're a technician that uh, solves cell phone problems, let's say, let's use that as an example, right? Um, And now you're in a position where you're creating a product that essentially solves those technical issues on cell phones. You probably have a lot of resident knowledge about what problems customers come to you with and how you go about solving them, right? Now, think about a larger organization and many people who have varying different experiences along these lines, and that is the resident knowledge that already exists within an organization. Now, how do we start to unpack that, right? Um, And this is true. um, If you start to think about your sales cycles, your customer service support cycles as opportunities for insights and those insights then creating innovation that lead to new products and services and so on and so forth, right? So that particular play can be applied in different contexts and different companies, uh, depending on whether they're doing B2B or B2C or B2B2C type uh, services. So you've got this playbook and these processes that you're getting in place. What, what do you do? How do you, how do you and your team measure the impact of design and, and the effects of putting these processes in place? And how does that get communicated to the rest of the company? Uh, fair enough. Uh, so the uh, couple of different things, right? So for starters, when changes start to impact the way in which we deliver products and how products gets perceived by our customers, that is probably the most evident one that people are going to start to see and that are that is probably in terms of measurement, that is the most easiest thing to measure, right? Um, the difficult thing to measure is culture and how does something feel good after you implement a process, right? And I haven't cracked that measurement nut uh, in terms of getting a tangible score that says uh, everyone feels good. If if they're above uh, 75, everyone feels good. Or if someone's at 90, that's an A, 80, that's a B, or, or anything like that. Uh, so that's the tough one. But you can start to see how an organizational works and performs as a result of those changes. And those kinds of changes um, impact your immediate stakeholders, and you will quickly understand how that is impacting them and how welcoming are they of that particular change. And a lot of what we go through in terms of bringing about new processes is about getting alignment with those stakeholders and making sure that they are willing to experiment this with us, right? And from that standpoint, I would say log me in is phenomenal in terms of experimenting, understanding, trying to learn from them and trying to build on top of it, right? So uh, as a culture, it's phenomenal when you encounter that. And as a result, it makes someone like my job a lot easier um, in, in terms of introducing new things into that ecosystem. So I'm sure there are a lot of people listening to this podcast 
in a big enterprise, uh, they're they're struggling to to find a way for design to be valued like it is. Like you're 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 creating this environment at Log Me In. What advice do you have, uh, whether they're an individual contributor or uh, in some sort of a leadership position, to start to build some momentum that design can transcend the borders, start to be accepted and valued by other teams and potentially even on the executive level? Great question. And what I would say is, this is the way I think about it. I'm not necessarily saying this is how everybody should think about it. The way I think about it is I'm sowing the seeds of these elements of design and design culture into the organization. And if you start to think about your results, and if you expect that result to be in the next month, in the next year, in the next three years, that is that is going to be tough to go through, right? Um, and, and I'm not trying to say we shouldn't be results-oriented. I'm just trying to point out that the seeds and the benefits of the seeds that we sow today, we may not be the ones that are going to be enjoying the fruits of. It may be the next generation of design teams that come into that same place that are going to enjoy that, right? Um, if we start to think about as design leaders, just purely from the standpoint of, I want to get to this end state, and that end state is something that will make design an appreciated and a revered organization within the larger company, um, that's an admirable goal to have. Right. And the way we go about achieving that is where a lot of tough decisions and um, an understanding of yourself and your leadership style and what you are able to do and what you're not able to do, all of these things come into play. And it's not like I could give you, uh, I can take the playbook that I'm running at Log Me In or that I ran at Cox and say, hey, here you go, use this, it would work, right? Um, so it's, a, it's the context of culture, people, yourself, most importantly, as a design leader. Um, and the way you think about leadership all comes into play in terms of what playbooks you can run and what are the plays you can run and how you can run them, right? Um, so hate to say uh, it depends, uh, but uh, a lot of it is about understanding the wide range of tools that are available and what within the context of where you're working, will that particular tool be applicable or how that tool will be applicable and how do you run those plays effectively? And that has to sometimes connect with who you are as a leader as well. And those are the things that people need to understand. And hopefully, uh, as a design community, we are making changes that are going to start making ripple effects, not only within the corporations, but beyond the corporations. Well, this has been really fantastic. And um, we just got one more question for you to finish things off. What are some uh, books, blogs, or other resources that you found helpful as you've gone through the process of helping a company transform its design practice? Great question. So a lot of the books uh, that I read these days uh, are around change management, uh, 
Switch by uh, the Heat Brothers uh, as a phenomenal book around change management. Uh, there, there are great authors out there that have talked about change management in different ways. Um, from a design organization and uh, design principles, uh, there, there's just a lot of resources that are available in the form of podcasts. You guys are doing a phenomenal job in terms of uh, providing that education material uh, across the globe uh, and, and connecting leaders with information, materials, speakers, uh, contacts that can help them. And there are other uh, podcasts and blogs available uh, in terms of uh, research. There's mixed methods research. Uh, there's a podcast. There's a Slack channel. There's, uh, there's a variety of resources um, that are available. Um, and for me, a lot of it, uh, the way I discovered was through apps in my iPhone and the news stories apps, as well as the myriad of other applications that uh, focus in on personal recommendations based on your reading practices and your uh, choices in news channels that you derive this information from. Um, so those are the things that I use on a daily basis. And it's uh, sometimes I go into one specific channel uh, and uh, subscribe to them like a mixed method, or sometimes I continue to use the aggregated uh, version of it to look at recommendations and other new things. And for me, the most interesting thing is the application of techniques in other industries that apply to your own. Um, so uh, more than anything, that's what I have found fascinating in terms of learning from and trying to appropriate that into my own playbook, into my own uh, uh, way of applying things within an organization or uh, in, in my daily life. And that's uh, the one piece that I found uh, interesting. And it all also gets you to understand about other parts of the world and how they operate and what the problems that they are facing and how they solve those things. That's great. Well, T.S. Balaji, VP Product Design and Customer Experience, log me in. Thank you so much for being on the Design Better podcast. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Really appreciate it, you guys. Thank you. <laughs>